Algar Productions. Algar Productions. I'm Ron Algar Watt, and this is More Bits. If you've seen the video reviews I did of the 80s cartoon series Transformers, you probably heard me gush about one particular writer with regularity. That writer was David Wise. While Mr. Wise didn't write my single favorite episode of the series, that distinction falls to Michael Charles Hill, an interview with whom can be found in More Bits episode 22, he did write more episodes than any other writer on that show, including a number that made it into my personal top 10. He was also involved with the Star Trek animated series, which we have covered on the Post-Atomic Horror podcast, and the Batman animated series, which we have discussed covering when Post-Atomic Horror wraps up. So, yeah, this guy touched a bunch of shows that were, and are, very important to me. I have so many notes and so many things I want to ask you, and I will try my best to uh, to not fanboy out here, because this is this is seriously a super huge deal for me. Um, <laughs> I talked to uh, uh, one of your uh, cohorts on Transformers a few years ago, uh, Michael Charles Hill. Um, oh, yes. I, I know Michael. Yeah, and so I have a... I, I had only one cohort on Transformers, by the way, which was Bryce Malik, the story editor. The other guys I hardly ever met. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. We ne- I just worked out of my house. Oh, well, see, that's... All of those in the back room of, of my little house in Sherman Oaks. That, that's kind of what I was leading into, is, like, I got the impression from him that there was... Face, oh, no, not at all. That's fine. Okay, it's not going to bother you or anything. No. Now I'm 3,000 miles away, and it's water vapor. <laughs> You're not you're not getting high, are you? Because I mean, I, not that no, I no, okay. Just nicotine. Just okay. Nicotine. A friend of mine said, "Oh, I hate those fucking things." I was like, "Why?" It's like an <laughs> asthma inhaler with some nicotine in it. Yeah. He goes, "Because it's a drug delivery system." Yeah. It was like, yeah, so Starbucks. Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> anyway, pray continue. Anyway. Oh, no, no, that's fine. No, he, he kind of painted the picture of uh, a lot of those guys working sort of from a central office and they all hung out. They all played like D&D together and stuff like that. I was just curious if you were part of that and you kind of answered what, that. What, well, not ever when I was involved with the show. Was this uh, was he in Flint Dilly's? Yes. Okay, yeah. See, I didn't do anything that season. I actually pitched about 100 shows because Flint really wanted me on the show, but he never went for one of my ideas. So I was like, okay. So, no, they did kind of hang out at Sunbow. Uh But that was Sunbow's season. And, uh, well, in the last season, which I did by myself, was also Sunbow's season. But since it was just me by myself, I just, you know, hung out with myself. Right. But the the first sixty five were done by Marvel, and that was all just freelancers all sitting at home. Don Don Gluten, me, and people like that. Right. Um, so the the I, I don't know if you you saw you've seen at least one of my uh, YouTube reviews. I don't know if you've seen any of the other ones, but if if you watch any of your episodes, you will see a distinctive pattern emerge, which is me constantly kissing your ass. Really? It's constantly, oh, David Wise wrote this one. It's kind of like constant snark. <laughs> no, I mean, there's definitely snark there. But but it's always like, oh, David Wise wrote this. Good. This will be good. And and a bunch of people wrote in and like, why do you pay attention to the writer? And like, come on, stupid. You see the pattern. This guy writes good episodes. That's why. Yeah. And here's the other thing. We wrote them. Yeah. You know, everybody wants the voice actors. And I get it. Sure. And also that particular show had like one of the greatest voice casts of all time. Yeah, it did. But at the end of the day, voice actors just talk about, they come in for a couple hours, they sit in the studio, they read their lines, they're not usually with anybody else. Right. And they go home. And we are the people who rip those stories out of our guts. 
Right. We are those stories. So, you know, it always is so sort of humorous to me that nobody's, I'm always in there, interested in the writer. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. I'm into it's like cast. Yeah. Okay, fine. They stand there and they, they say the lines and pretend that they wrote them. <laughs> did, uh, did you ever get to sit in on, uh, on any nope. voice stuff nope. since we're talking about that? No, that's unfortunate. Nope. Nor only one session on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which I was on for nine years. Yeah. I, I saw you talking about that on, uh, on Facebook not too long ago. So, no, um, I have been to voice sessions mm-hmm. of some shows. I never went to a train. I wish, you know, I had. But, I, you know, the other thing, well, no, I was really too busy just cranking out the scripts because I wrote like 13 or 14 scripts the first year. <laughs> yeah. So even and on Turtles, frankly, that's the reason I probably could have gone to any voice session I wanted to. But I was usually too busy. Sure. And then the, the, either that or I was done with the scripts and on to something else. Mm hmm. Or I was done with the script and didn't want to think about them anymore. <laughs> I absolutely know the feeling. Um, but the, the thing I noticed particularly about your stuff is yeah, it, it kind of falls into two categories. Either you did sort of off the beaten path stuff that maybe the other guys didn't. Like you just mentioned the other day on Facebook, uh, the girl who loved Power Glide. Like the, right. not really this sort of traditional story. Or right. you got like the deep mythology stuff. You got to like right. do the backstory. Were you allowed to do that? Or did they give you sort of bullet points and say, here's the basic backstory. Now write this. Or did you get to make it up? You're, you're talking about the, the, the mythology. Right, exactly. Key to Vector Sigma and then a lot of the stuff in Rebirth. Well, surely, I, I've told this story a lot of times. The key to Vector Sigma went down like this. Bryce Malick, who was my one cohort mm-hmm. on that show, the story editor, came to me and said, uh, they want you to create, the, they've got a new line of characters they're introducing. They're, they're, um, we're giving cars, they're giving cars to the Decepticons and planes to the Autobots, mm-hmm. other than Power Glide. And uh, they're called the Aerialbots and the Stunticons. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're going to do their first story. And I said, oh, good, an origin story. Because it's always fun to do an origin story because an origin story is kind of like a one-off. Yeah. You know, um, and, and he said, oh, yeah. And uh, so they're, they're all, their personalities are all created by this. No, uh, actually what he said was there's this thing called um, uh, Vector Sigma mm-hmm. who's involved with creating them. And I went, what's a Vector Sigma? <laughs> and Bryce went, uh, I'll ask him. Yeah. So the story editor didn't know. So he went to Hasbro and said, what's a Vector Sigma? And Hasbro said, oh, probably Sunbow said. It was probably Jay Bacall at Sunbow. Uh, I mean, I, I I don't know for sure, but it was probably somebody at Sunbow. Mm-hmm. said, um, oh, that's the supercomputer that gave the Transformers, the various Transformers, their personalities. To which Bryce immediately snapped back, well, it must not work very well. <laughs> because if you saw what we had to work with on these characters, I and mean, we got this sheet of like 130 rundowns right. on each character, and, and it was all, they can do this, they can do that, they turn into this, this is their transform, as they called it, uh-huh. all this stuff. And then there was like half a sentence about their personality. <laughs> so um, Omega Supreme was taciturn. That was his whole personality. Wow. Um, you know, another character is bossy. Mm-hmm. You know, another character is uh, Motormouth. And that was it. And it was like, yeah. So Bryce goes, it must not work very well because, you know, they all had paper. We had to come up with some personality to give these guys. Well, and as a writer, that oh, must have, as, as oh, a writer, yeah. that must have kind of freed you up to give, you know. Well, 
yes, and to the point where it's like it freed me up to do things that were totally against their personality like <laughs> in The Secret of Omega Supreme. Right. Where I basically wrote him as, you know, talking like a regular guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, then Bryce had to fix it after I turned it in it, by adding the scene where Optimus Prime says to says to him, you know, uh, uh, oh yeah, just this once, just this once, could yeah, you talk like a regular guy, right? And he's like, oh okay, <laughs> you know, and then and then it's just my dialogue from that that point in. So yes, it freed us up, and it's also, I mean, you know, the fans go off on the continuity errors and like, ah. the girl who love Power Glide. There's the business of using the psychoprobe on Astoria. Right. Apparently, shockwave could, or soundwave could, could read minds. Okay. <laughs> apparently, in another episode, he'd been shown reading minds. Right. And and so, you know, the question is, well, why didn't he do it? Well, he didn't do it because I didn't know that. For all I know, that episode might not have been even written yet. That might have been written after my episode. But the point is, you know, I mean, I had enough to do just writing the 13 that I wrote. I was not going to sit down and read every... It was bad enough having to read my own episode. <laughs> I was not going to read all the other episodes. I figured if there was continuity error, Bryce uh, or one of the other story editors would catch it, and they didn't. Right. So, <laughs> uh, and that's also why I think the Constructicons have, like, some out-of-continuity. Yeah, they got, like, three different origins. But uh, right. the, the yeah. thing is, I, I don't... Like, I'm not that kind of fan. Like, I was... 10, 11, 12 when the show was on and it was just, oh, cool, robots. And you guys all brought such a, a great sort of sci-fi sensibility to it, a sort of pulp sensibility to it that I it was just fun. I didn't care. It didn't all have to fit perfectly. Yeah, and, and, and exactly. Who cares? About, you know, but I, I'm sort of the same way. But then, you know, I can be a continuity freak. You know, mm-hmm. I think it depends on the story you're telling. I mean, these were written. There was no home video. Right. It was just barely home video. Yeah, you didn't expect us to be pouring over these 30 years yeah, later. not rewatchable. So if we made any goofs, it's like who cares and also here's the other thing they never aired in order and in syndication yep. once you go through the first like 65 or 13 or how many episodes you have after that they they are completely out of order mm-hmm. so you know and and fans go by the production numbers but the production numbers have nothing to do with how the the shows rolled out the order they rolled out and that's just you know the next script is is you know 172 and the next script is 173 right no, it's just a number. It's just an identifier. It's not an indicator of order. So. No, and it, anyway. it sounds so, like yes, they... Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, it just... So, yes, it freed us up, but in the case of... Um, there was one case where I was nervous, which was Wardon. Uh-huh. Where I basically, you know, sort of... I went, oh, okay, I made this into a time-traveling episode. Mm-hmm. Now I can show, you know, the start of the war and the origin of Optimus Prime and, 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 and these these... These young uh, aerial bots can see for themselves, however, and the audience can see how it went down. And while I was writing it, I was like, oh, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna, this guy's going to be up in his prime, and I'm going to kill him violently and yeah. resurrect him as often. And all the while, a voice in, my back, in the back of my head was going, boy, I hope they don't kill this. Yeah. I mean, I was really nervous that they would go, no, this contradicts everything we've done. And, but they just, you know, apparently they hadn't done that much. So, so that got away with it. That wasn't that was like the one time I was nervous. That was the one time I was nervous. I was afraid they would kill the whole story. But that wasn't a case like Key to Vector Sigma, where they came to you and said, "Sell these toys, use this basic concept." You basically said, "I'm going to write Optimus Prime's origin story," yeah, and they said, I just, "Sure." I just did that on my own. Yeah, like, yeah. That was like a you know kind of you're welcome, Sumbo. Here it is. Uh, 
That's fantastic. And uh, the cool thing, and I got this talking to Michael Charles Hill as well, it seems like you guys were all a bunch of nerds, for want of a better word. Like you, I, I did a little research on you. You seem to have grown up on like Doctor Who and stuff like that. And you, you like, I see some of that influence in your stuff. I can see some like sort of contemporary sci-fi influences in your stuff. And it, it seems like... Well, I started, I started as a science fiction writer. I right. I science fiction when I was like 17. Uh, you know, my the first movie that made the, the first movies that made impressions on me were the old Universal horror films, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula, and especially King Kong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a kid during the Silver Age of of comics, which basically means, you know, I mean, I was the perfect age for Spider Man. Yep. Uh, I remember, you know, I, I don't remember issue one of Spider-Man and X-Men. I actually do remember issue one of X-Men, but Spider-Man and FF and all that was cool, like a little before my time. Mm-hmm. But when Ditko and Kirby and Lee were like at the height of their powers, 65, 66, 67, that's when I was like, you know, 10. Right. So it's the perfect age for that. So, yeah, I was a huge fan of all that stuff, but I was never a fan. I mean, to this day, I don't really, I never, there there were conventions, you know, when I was a teenager. I, I, I only went if I was going with a professional. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to do this stuff for a living, but I didn't want to dress up like Spider-Man and run around a convention. I mean, I've never really been into fanish activities, but, you know, yeah, I was absolutely a stone geek. That's um, But, the, but the, not a fan. I mean, like Star Trek, which is the first thing I wrote was the animated Star Trek. Yeah. I wasn't particularly a Star Trek fan when, I mean, I was 18 when I wrote it. Uh-huh. And I'd been a little young for Star Trek. I was like 10, I think, or maybe even 9 when it came on the air. And that was just too young to kind of get. I mean, I liked the starship and I liked the, sure. the look of it, but I didn't. it was too grown up for me. Um, and then between then and writing the Star Trek, I became a professional SF writer and read a lot of, you know, real SF. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Asimov and, 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 and Clark and, and Heinlein and then very experimental stuff. Uh uh, which is really what I was into was like avant-garde stuff. At mm-hmm. that point. So, you know, I didn't really become a fan of Star Trek until I had to sit down and rewatch as much of the series as was available in syndication prior to working on that one episode. And then I went, oh, this is pretty good. Okay, I, I get why everybody likes this so much. Mm-hmm. I had just been too young for it. The one, so, I, but I tend not to, and I tend not to like writing stuff I'm a fan of. That makes sense. Um, you know, to me, it's more like, I sort of like taking... A potentially interesting concept and just making it as interesting as I can. Mm-hmm. And for me, like, you know, the Autobot Decepticon stuff was, you know, it was okay. It was a basic conflict of Transformers, but, you know, it was like the riffs you could run on that that were interesting to me. That's why my first episode is where I get the Decepticons all drunk on Intergon. Yep. And, you know, very quickly after that, I was right, you know, I was like, well, these guys are supposed to protect the human race. Let's have them interact with, you know, because Spike and Sparkplug and all, those characters were, like, boring as dirt to me. <laughs> I mean, I barely, the only time I remember using, is it Sparkplug or Spike? Who's the kid? Uh, Spike is the kid. Spike. Right, right, of course he is. Autobot Spike. Yeah. Uh, was in Power, the girl who loved Power Girl. Oh, yeah, when you had him jealous. Right, yeah, and there's all sorts of Freudian stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the drill bit that breaks and whatnot, which was the first. That, was that deliberate? Oh, that was totally delivered. Oh, fantastic. Because I did, I did, in my commentary, I would do a lot of, oh, I wonder if they really meant this. Oh, and no, the, no, no, no. I really meant that whole thing. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, when he says, yeah, there's a couple of things he can't do. Yeah, exactly. What he's talking about. Of course he's talking about that, you know. Well, when I was so, 10, I didn't know that. 
Well, no, of course not. The, the, the idea was that was for me. That wasn't for you. Yeah, exactly. But the nice thing is, I can appreciate it now. Right, exactly. They kind of they kind of wear well when you when you kind of write them with an eye to adults. Yeah. But uh, uh, so I would bring in these characters like Raoul and the story, and you know, the, and 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 Augie in Trans Europe mm-hmm. Express, which was frankly the episode where I, I went. I think I've made one too many trips to the well. <laughs> on this show it's just like it's kind of i'm not i've run out of ways to make it interesting i think that literally was my last episode uh as as i'm i got like all my notes here the i think the last one that aired might have been Kremzik, but like you say they didn't necessarily oh, go in order so way way earlier yeah Kremzik was was i called it my, the roadrunner episode yeah my note here is somebody just saw gremlins but uh yeah but i'm not so sure that Oh, I must have seen Gremlins. That that would have been around that time. Well, I remember I saw Gremlins when it came. I saw Gremlins and it came out in the summer, as I recall. Yeah, eighty four. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, I must have seen it. It just it had that feel to me. It had that feel of like like you wanted that chaos and you know. Right. Yo. No. Well, that was yes. That was definitely the whole idea. But it was also to some degree the Gremlins from you know the Bugs Bunny cartoon Falling Hair. Right. Um, and I'm sure I got the idea from that character. I'm sure it came from somewhere else. I mean, I know visually he sort of came from Reddy Kilowatt, who was like the power company's mascot. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I think there must have been some antecedent for him in the back of my head somewhere, but I can't remember exactly what it is. But certainly Gremlins was on my mind, and the idea was, yeah, how much trouble can this guy cause? Right. And and uh, uh, turning them loose in Japan, which like in, in the 80s as kids, we all knew there was a Japanese influence on the show, but they never really addressed that. And to see them go to Tokyo and chase this little thing around, it was like, oh, cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that was just because I knew the Japanese influence. In fact, I knew some of the people who did the original manga and, you know, uh, animes like uh, Mazinger Z and whatnot. Right. Uh, uh, actually showed up once in 1980 at the back door at the back door to my my backyard the gate mm-hmm. asking me for advice on a de- with a translator asking me for advice on a deal and he pretty much started the the giant robot and giant robot as a mecha suit you can wear crazy. right and so well, you- no I was totally into that I was into the Shogun Warriors too. Mm-hmm. I loved the Shogun Warriors even though I was like technically a grown up I actually had all those toys <laughs> Um, so, you know, and, and I had been to Japan a few years earlier, so I, I just had to take him to Japan. And in fact, the character of uh, Soji Yoshikawa, who's the scientist they go to for help in Japan, uh-huh. he, that, he's named after a guy I knew who's an anime director. He directed the first Lupin the Third feature film. Oh, nice. The one before Castle of Cagliostro. I mean, he's like, he was like, he's like a moderately well-known a director, so so that was named after a director, right? A, a Japanese director. So anyhow, yeah, very cool. Next note. Um, well, the 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 main the main thing I really want to talk to you about, and and it's going to sound like I don't like this episode, and I don't want it to come off like that. I love it so much, but it is so batshit insane. Is Autobop? Uh, yeah, you know, you if you it's okay if you don't like that episode. No, I love it. I love it so much, but it's bizarre. <laughs> Well, you know, honestly, I, I, you know, when I get a nutty idea, and that's, again, not an original idea. No. The, the, I, I do believe I may have lifted that from, I wrote for a series called Buck Rogers. Mm-hmm. And actually, was it Buck Rogers? or No, I think it was Wonder Woman. Um, anyway, there was an episode of Wonder Woman, and 
And now I have to look this up. Hang on. <laughs> called Disco Devil. Oh, Lord. And a friend of mine, I think, wrote it. Wonder Woman, Disco Devil, pops up in the suggested field on uh, Google. Excellent. They list everybody except whoever wrote the... Oh, yeah, it was Alan. Yeah, it was my friend Alan Brenner mm -hmm. uh, wrote this episode. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know. Let me look at the plot and see if it's similar. They, uh, yeah, a man lures important government officials into his disco so he can rob their minds. The idea of a disco that hypnotizes you... Yeah. Was, ...was not... But I went, okay, so, you know, he's a street kid. You know, it was at the middle of, like, you know, kind of the... The what? What the hell did they call it back? Techno pop dance music, right? Human League, Human League, uh, Duran Duran, whatever craze. And uh, and the first one, uh, Make Tracks, was very hip hop influenced. With mm -hmm. the, they were, you know, they were they were tagging and 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 doing graffiti. And uh, I think there's some break dancing in it. Is maybe it's it, Autobop definitely has some, yeah, where they're break so I thought, you know, well, that's all part of that scene. Uh -huh. So let's make it a club, and then let's make it a Septicon's club. And once I had that idea, I thought, well, they're going to be hypnotizing just anybody. So, I mean, if I could have gotten away with it, and I didn't, I mean, I would have had nuns running around, ah. you know, blasters and things. And, you know, but that the, 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 they put in some of my nutty ideas, like the housewife with her hair in yeah. colors. And, yeah, you know, it's, that it, was, you know, that was just a case of, oh, this could be amusing and also there was this case of there's very little adult supervision for the writers of this show right really very little <laughs> so let's see what we can get away with you know i always figured well if it's too much bryce will pull it back and if he doesn't somebody at sunbow will scream and pull it back and they very seldom pulled it back well it sounds like they had a pretty like it at the peak of it when you were writing especially for season two they did 65 episodes that year like it seems like they probably didn't have the luxury of of making extensive notes like okay we got a script let's go you know what i mean yes well it was yes and that's why i love doing stuff like that because there's no time for them to mess with it. <laughs> uh yeah no it, it didn't have to be perfect it just had to be done right and that's that's to some degree where because I tend to write multiple 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 blah, blah, multiple episodes of shows that I work on. Mm -hmm. Why this rep, you know, is being a guy who re recycles plots. Very frequently, it's not so much plots as it is plot points or just concepts. Because when you, you know, I've I've worked on shows Transformers wasn't quite this bad, but where I had to get out like two half hour scripts a week. Wow. That's basically of just of sheer typing. Mm -hmm. That's like about 140 pages a week. Yeah, because for animation, you have to type all the descriptions and everything, too. It's not right. just dialogue. Right. The scripts are longer. The, my scripts tend to run about like 45, 50 pages. Uh -huh. um, plus you have story outline. Plus you have, you know, I mean, it's a lot of work. And when you're really under the gun, you want to just go with an idea you know works. Mm -hmm. not, a, not something that's going to have some kind of like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Wait, this won't work because this. Or there's no way, you know, this is a great premise, but there's no way to get a great ending out of it. Right. And you're two-thirds through it, and you go, I'm screwed. I have no ending. You want to go with something that works. And so when you have to do it, you know, fast and dirty, yeah, of course you recycle. I, you know, every writer I know. And back in those days, of course, we never thought this stuff was going to particularly live forever and that there were going to be fans who had them on some form of home video and watched them 800 times. Right. To find every cell level, you know, or color error. Ugh. 
in everything. So, you know, it was like, and, and our audience would age out every couple of years. Right. It's a new audience. So, so very frequently I would go, you know, and everybody goes, well, you know, he, he ripped this idea. He didn't Transformers off from Turtles. Well, I had done that idea before Transformers. Sure. I had done it probably on He-Man. I might have done it on some stupid little filmation show I worked on that you never saw. <laughs> you know, the ideas are nothing. It's, it's the execution is everything. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, I mean, and and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna maneuver you into maneuver you into a corner where I'm gonna like force you to agree with this. But really, they're kids shows. They're for kids, and kids are kind of dumb. Like. Well, yeah, you're not going to maneuver me. No, no, of course not. I never, I never write for those kids. I write for the kid I was when I was their age. Oh, fair that's, enough. That's the key to my success. And I was, you know, I was dumb. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't mean dumb as in as in but, stupid, but, but not, you know, the kids. It's everything is new to a kid. That's yeah, what it's about. Exactly. It's all new to them. And you when know, I was, it doesn't matter if it's you know, oh, he's just doing the Incredible Shrinking Man. Yeah, you know. It's new to them. Well, and that's... that's you do it entertainingly, that's what matters. That's what brought us into contact in the first place was, I guess, a friend of yours wrote the Doctor Who episode that did a Fantastic Voyage homage, and you said, hey, yeah, I did one of these too, and you found my review. Right, right, right. And because yes. everyone's done one of those. I just watched uh, this latest season of Archer, and they just did one. Like, everyone does that episode. Of course, of course. Sooner or later, everybody does the Fantastic Voyage episode. I mean, I've done variations on it. In the Turtles pilot, there's a... They don't shrink down, but the the uh, Krang's giant robotic body becomes huge, mm-hmm. and they basically you know run around inside it. Yeah, are tiny and have to run around inside it. I mean, that's, yeah, exactly. So getting back to Autobop, it was really more of a, you know, it could have been a real dull, you know, it could have been a real kind of rote episode, and mm-hmm. the idea of just you know. The nuttiness and the, you know, almost campiness of the, you know, the evil disco that... Yeah, that's exactly it. It's, if you're going to do that, have fun with it. Yeah. No, so that was that was basically my... And, and the idea was also was to kind of... Uh, kind of force tra- tracks back into Raul's world. Not mm-hmm. he, but his world was not really, you know, Dancertron, because Dancertron was like high-end. Right. And they wouldn't have made it past the rope line, although I'm still trying to figure out how the housewife and curlers made it through. <laughs> yeah, you look good. Come on in. Love the curlers. The fuchsia, isn't it? <laughs> a plastic. Um, uh, but, you know, it was just, if you're, if you're going to have a nutty idea, have the courage of your conviction. Right. And just go go for broke. So that's that's what it was with that one. Yeah, and that's what I love about it so much. It is so it just embraces the camp. It's so gloriously over the top. You have you have a flying Corvette and a break dancer versus evil robots trying to hypnotize people with a dance club. It's just it's yep. fucking nuts. I love it. And it was also the mid eighties. And you know the yeah. funny thing? Bryce thought that episode was really dark. Really? Yeah, and I was like, okay. It was because there's a certain amount of like street crime and sort of it may have been more in my writing but i was kind of trying to write more of a sort of urban apocalypse setting sure and maybe it was maybe it was maybe it was make tracks was it was one of those two i think he both thought they were both kind of dark well make tracks had more like urban you know you, you had more stuff in make tracks about like uh car thieves and stuff like that so it probably was that one 
But I, I could see that. The, the interesting By thing the is... Way, Sunbow oh. want, uh, Autobop happened because Sunbow wanted a sequel to make track. Oh, nice. What, you created a human character that was interesting and they wanted you to bring him back? Was that the, the yeah, gist of it? That, they said we want to do another one with Raul. Cool. And I'm sure you've heard the jokes over the years, the fan jokes that Trax and Raul are a couple and that kind of thing. Like, sure, I've heard that. (laughs) And I can't deny that I've made the joke. And it's not it's not because of the voice actor's voice. It's because some of the you gave them very sort of snappy banter. It was sort of like like um, uh, it's a bromance. No, I I understand. I understand. And I'm not. (laughs) <laughs> it it just it, it some of it comes off as like you know uh, sort of snipey. Uh, God, I'm trying to think like uh, like Tracy and Hepburn type stuff. Yeah. Okay. That's fair enough. And and that's you know it, it well, that that added a level to it, and then well, and there is something to you know Trax's Thurston Howell the Third. Yeah. Exactly. That's uh, and oh boy, when I first saw that, and I went, really, they're doing Jim Backus. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing Gilligan's Island for this guy. I mean, because that I had no idea. No, he's like flying Corvette. That is the furthest voice. Yeah, yeah exactly. I just thought that was, you know, I mean, it was a good Jim Backus, but yeah. it's just wrong for the character. But, you know, when they're doing these things, the actor has to get some kind of handle on the character. Right. And when all else fails, you go to imitation. Yeah, absolutely. So whatever had been written there, I, I don't know why he went, to, you know, because it's like Power Glide. Power Glide is, and again, I was kind of like not happy to see this. But he's basically Jackie Gleason. Yep. You know, and I'm like, really? <laughs> wow. You know, this is like, finally, well, a TV show for our generation. <laughs> well, the, the one thing is, me as a kid growing up in the 80s, I didn't recognize that, first of yeah, all. Yeah, of course. And, of course. and they're funny voices. So yeah. That's- you know, that's good. And and these voice actors had, you know, 120 toys or whatever per season to have to come up with voices for. So I'm sure they kind of struggle after a while to, like, oh, yeah, I used all my British and accents. So. And here's the thing. They also have to nail something they can come back to like, right. you know, a month later. The next time, you know, Trax shows up in a show. Just, oh, Jim Bacchus, go. Playback. You can do playback of, you know, here's, here's how you did the voice, but. Yeah. You know, to help them get back into it. But, yeah. Yeah, anyway, I, so yeah, that was that was not uh, that was not my uh, first not choice. My I certainly wouldn't have made him, you know, that. I'm not sure what I would have made him in 1985, but mm-hmm. uh, anyway, so that's that's the voice we got stuck with. Yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, they're not, you know, I mean, they're a couple in the sense that they're, you know, I was really trying to go more for a buddy story. But, sure. I mean, you know, look at like Lethal Weapon. Yeah, two or three good dances awfully close to that one. Gibson is shot, and 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 uh, and Danny Glover's holding him, and and he, he says he says kiss me. Yeah, you know, come on, kiss me. And, and Starsky and Hutch, they actually did kiss in the final in the seventies. Yeah, they kissed on screen. Wow, I'm sure they played it for laughs or something, right? Well, sort of. I, you know, I can't remember. I, I, I need to rewatch that. That, by the way, was a pretty great show. I mean, it was it was awful. Yeah. But there's so much of, like, basically action movies as we've known them for the last 25, 30 years that basically comes from Starsky and Hutch. Right. Michael Mann wrote for Starsky and Hutch. Oh, wow. He wrote one of the absolute worst episodes, the corniest, <laughs> gimmickiest episode of Starsky and Hutch involving a little old lady who doesn't know she's got a ticking bomb in the trunk of her car. Oh, Lord. Um, but it's Michael Mann. So, right. You know, like one of my idols. So <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, it's, you know, they make everybody into a couple. Right. Nowadays, so. No, and I'm and not. By the way, speaking of which, 
all of my Transformer fan mail at the time mm-hmm. was from teenage girls. Really? And in every case, it may have been because a girl who loved Power Glide, I have no idea. In every case, they would send me fan art and fan fiction, handwritten, you know, or typed. Right. You know, there was no internet yet. And in the fiction, you know, Optimus Prime or whoever at the very end would pull his face mask off and there was a real man under there. Oh, God. Every, well, you know, I know. I, my, no, I get that. I, I get it. You know, I get it. I, 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 like, totally get it. I was also sort of going, why do I, you know, what is it about what I write that triggers this response? And maybe, you know, the fact that they're trying to make Trax and Raul into a couple. That could be. Might have something to do with it. But I'm just saying. Oh, the other the other thing is Sunbow at one point, when I was working on Rebirth at the very end of the uh-huh. run, uh, sent me a stack of fan mail they received, each of them saying the same thing, more or less, which was... Because the movie had come out at that point. Why did mm-hmm. David Wise write the Transformers movie? He wrote the best episode of the TV well, series. Yeah, because you got to do all the rich backstory stuff, so we all kind of thought, you're you're the guy. Well, but here's the other thing. My name is on that show more than any other writers. I don't think anybody came close to writing as many as I did. Right. Um, so, but, you know, I mean, there were good episodes that I didn't write, I imagine. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I watched a few. Um and there's certainly ones the fans remember, like, you know, the Dinobots and, you know, Don Gluth stuff. And sure. Stuff like that. But uh, anyway, yeah, so that was very flattering. And I think they did that so that I would stick with them on Rebirth because they really put me through the ringer on Rebirth when they cut it from five episodes to three. Yeah, I, I've seen some, like, uh, uh, little interview stuff on the DVDs and stuff where you talk about that, where they, they give you just a giant list of characters, like, here, right. introduce them all, and now you only have three episodes to do it. Good luck. Right, right. If five was hard enough, and when they squished it down to three i went oh all i can do is basically just bring them on in gangs have them all announce their names and then just shove them on yep <laughs> so uh there went all my great plans up well, it didn't really matter I mean, ah, it was going away anyway yeah it was going away and i was just they were paying me so well at that point <laughs> when i have to do this <laughs> that's fantastic mm, and i like the thing i added which was the whole plot with optimus prime suddenly sort of turning into you know this mad prophet saying there's you know Vector Sigma has just, right the new golden age and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. No, and it was nice because you pay off with Prime because I thought, God, these these numbskulls killed off Optimus Prime. Well, duh, they had to bring him back. How can you can't do that? Right. You know? I don't care how, if the toy isn't selling anymore. You know. <laughs> um, so, and I loved Optimus Prime was my favorite character in the whole series, and uh, and I'm usually not that way about the straight arrow hero. Right. But uh, it's usually the, you know, quirky, insecure one who's... Yeah, exactly. That's usually my kind of character, too. I'm curious, what what drew you to him? Like, what was it about him? He was a great leader. He was a great leader, and it was... And and sometimes it was fun to bounce stuff off him, like in in Kremzy. What's the plan, Prime? Who's had time to think of a plan? Mm. You know, um, uh, and he was just... He he was so admirable. I think it was uh, Jeff Scott somebody who was involved in the very early development of Transformers who said he's Abraham Lincoln. You know, he's got this fractious group of squabbling sure. personality types, and he's the one who, you know, with malice toward none, can bring them together and lead them. And I went, you know, that's actually an admirable quality instead of just being, you know, a granite-jawed Dudley Do-Right. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, you know, he has, for some reason, he's just, he's the straight arrow who has a human dimension. And that's sort of irresistible. And I don't write it 
a lot. So it was fun to write him. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So anyway. Um, that, that's most of the Transformers stuff I had just because uh, we only have a couple more minutes and I want to I make sure I touch everything. The, the interesting thing is I, I did... a bad touch. What's oh sorry sorry. <laughs> um, the the interesting thing is I've done I did those reviews of Transformers. Right now I'm doing a Star Trek podcast, and you've touched Star Trek. <laughs> when we're done with that, I'm going to do a Batman animated series podcast. So you've you've touched like all my fanboy touchstones. It wow. and and it was good touch. So <laughs> what what was the experience working on uh, the Star Trek animated series though? I know you say you were you were 18 at the time. It was fantastic. It was like really the best experience of my life. They didn't touch a word. Really. Uh, yeah, we got to go to the recording session, at least the main one. Wow. Shatner wasn't there, and uh, um, DeForest Kelly sent in his lines from, like, Florida, where he was doing dinner theater. <laughs> but uh, Nimoy was there, and uh, uh, James Duhan, and... Uh, Nichelle Nichols. Uh, Nichelle Nichols, who mm-hmm. I keep running into at parties. Oh, nice. Uh, and chit-chatting with yeah if you if you run down my photo my timeline photo feed on facebook you'll see a picture of me way way down from like about a little over a year and a half at david gerald's birthday party oh wow trouble with triples uh-huh. um, david was the first new person i met when i moved out here um uh anyway so and it was just a great experience i collaborated with a guy named russell bates who's a full-blood kiowa indian oh okay so that's where Walking Bear came from. So when everybody's complaining about, yes, well, and, and we did it for Dorothy Fontana, the original story editor, mm-hmm. and she wanted, it was clear to me, and Russell was not getting it. Russell just was turning in sort of very conventional Star Trek ideas, mm-hmm. and he finally asked me to help him because I knew animation, because I had been a kid animator, right? made films that had you know some limited renown in the underground film world when I was a kid. And... Uh, he said, why don't you, you know, give me help? So we went, we met with Dorothy, and it was so obvious Dorothy wanted a Native American-themed story that when we, you know, as soon as we walked out, I went, Russ, we have to do an Indian story. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to do an Indian story. I was like, no, we got to do an Indian story. Come on, she's begging for it. So, you know, we sort of went through the legends, and we kind of wound up with a South American Native, a Native South American story, but mm-hmm. that was enough in the wheelhouse for Dorothy, and plus it had a great visual of the flying serpent, and sure, uh, you know, and we literally sat down and wrote it together. I mean, literally like, you know, we take turns with the typewriter, and we would just talk it out, mm-hmm. and it was it was a breeze to write. We didn't have very much time, but, you know, we had enough, and it was basically one draft and done, and, and they basically put pretty much everything we wrote on the screen. They, we got notes from Roddenberry. Mm-hmm. On a cassette, and we actually incorporated word for word a couple of his notes into the dialogue of the script, huh. just as a way of kissing up to the boss. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, so no, it was it was a dream, and 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 it, it you know, I, even at the time I went, it can't be that easy all the time, right? And it was never that easy again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you get uh, jumping ahead a bit? How did you get involved with the uh, Batman animated series? Because that show just um, incredible. Well, everybody, I mean, I knew everybody who was, you know, staff on the show. I knew Paul, I knew uh, Michael Reeves, one of the story editors, and I knew Marty Pascoe, who was one of the other story editors, and, you know, they just called up and said, you want to write for this? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you know, I went, of course I want to write for that. I've known Jerry Robinson since I was, like, eight. Right. Jerry Robinson, you know, created Robin. Uh-huh. And the Joker. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and uh, he only passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, I never got to write The Joker. I actually did, but it was a show that was rewritten by other people. Hmm. Um, but, you know, and then the first one... Oh, so it's like, you know, I know Jerry Robinson. You're going to give me The Joker, right? Well, of course, everybody wanted The Joker. Sure. And Marty said, we're giving you The Clock King. And I was like, uh, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> fucking Clock King? Oh, my God. And then immediately I flashed to... Have you ever seen... The Miyazaki film, The Castle of Cagliostro, the Lupin the Third. I have not, but I am aware of it. Okay, well, did you see that Fast and the Furious fake Fast and the Furious poster I posted yesterday on Facebook? Yes, that's the Castle of Cagliostro with the faces sort of changed. Oh, okay. Um, it has this famous finale, which is a duel among the gears of a giant clock tower clock hmm. between Lupin and the bad guy. It's, I mean, it's just jaw-droppingly great. Disney ripped it off in The Great Mouse Detective. It's been ripped off a zillion times, including more than once by me. <laughs> and when he said Clock King, after I picked my jaw up off the floor and mopped up all the, you know, the puddle of drool. Right. Um, I flashed on that and I went, okay, I can make this work. Clock King versus Batman and Clock Tower. We do the Castle Cagliostro finale. Now all we have to do is back up and build up to that. Right. You know? And that was pretty much it. And it was, you know, that was fun to write. And then they gave me the Riddler. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. A character everybody knows. And they said, oh, it's his origin story. I went, okay, neat. So I basically came up with something that was a little bit, you know, off of my experience on Turtles, which was you take, I mean, I didn't create the Turtles. I just created everything about them that made them popular. <laughs> right. Uh, except for their visual look, which was not me, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody else made hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, and I made nothing. So, uh, but I'm not bitter. No, no, of course not. Of course not. Um, and, you know, I thought, okay, he's a game manufacturer. He's done a game where you have to solve riddles to get through the levels. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, and uh, uh, then I had to do the Riddler, the riddles. And one thing they were adamant about, which I, I totally get, was no riddle me this, Batman. Yeah, I imagine you had to completely get out of the whole, like, Batman 66, like, the, the shadow. I mean, because really, the Riddler, nobody really remembered anything. Like, Frank Gorshin is it. Otherwise, yeah. that character's kind of forgettable. But you, you right. did something new with him. so Right. And here's the other thing, because, you know, the, the, the series just came out on Blu-ray, and we've actually been re-watching it. Mm-hmm. And really, his, his Riddler is pretty much the Joker. Yeah, without without the grin. I mean, he's even got he's got a better laugh than than. The, and Cesar Romero is great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Cesar Romero is the Joker, even with the with the painted mustache. Yeah, right. Yeah, is is fantastic. No, the thing about Gorshin is he had that presence. He had the, he was like a coiled creepy. spring. Yeah, he's creepy and scary. The way he's crouching around all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and he looks angry. Yeah, he's smiling, but he looks angry, and that's really scary. Right. And um. So, yeah, no, they totally wanted to get away from, from that. And I said, well, I'm going to do real riddles. I'm not just going to do, you know, jokes. Because, if you, again, if you watch the, the 60s show, it's like there's some riddles, but mostly it's like joke riddles. Right. And then it came time to actually do the riddles. And I was like, oh, my God. I actually have to think up difficult riddles that will make sense to a young audience. Right. And that was murder i have never worked as hard in my life on any episode <laughs> of anything as i did on that one episode it just about killed me um it was very hard i actually got blocked and was late with the episode which almost never i mean it, 
that's the only time it's ever happened with me. It was that hard. Just it was coming up with the riddles. It was just daunting. Well, yeah. If you're writing an I evil genius, that kind of mind. You know, right. I'm about drama, and frankly, I'm about easy answers. Sure. Not hard answers. <laughs> so, um, you know, in the oh yeah, this will work. So, but you know, so it was very hard. But it was you know, it was a lot of fun at the end, and I, I sort of love the visual of you know the, the amusement park that brings the labyrinth to life and then right you know we had to have the hand but even though that stuff's a bit out there it's good for batman and again it's good for animation it's very visual so. absolutely and and going back real quick to the clock king the the thing that really impressed me when i was trying to sell people on this show no no it's batman it's dark it's more grown up they took the clock king this ridiculous silver age character and they made him into this cool sort of hitchcocky and just like right. guy who had a bad day and snapped and right Right, that's exactly right. Some of that had to do with Marty Pascoe, the story editor. He kind of did the, um, he worked on the, not so much the backstory, I think, but really the idea that this guy is just, he's obsessive compulsive about right. time and about being on time and whatnot. And I went, okay, that's something I can run with. And from that came the backstory of, you know, uh, 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 Mayor Hill, pre-Mayor Hill, making him like, you know, a minute late. And yep. There being a that minute. threw everything off. And yeah, right, right, exactly. but it was a great mirror for Batman, who is also a lot like that in a lot of ways. He's super obsessive and he's got his like meticulous plans and everything. So it was a nice sort of mirror of, you know, that driven, right. well, you know, if you've seen um, Andrea Lippmann, God, I know her and I can't pronounce her, 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 um, her, uh, uh, podcast that she and her and Brian Ward of Shout Factory have been doing about the series. I've posted links to the ones on mine. Mm-hmm. She's a psychologist, and she basically goes into the psychology of it. And at least as far as my involvement with the series went, it was like this is a show about psychology. This is a show about basically you know aberrant psychology. Right. Uh, and and you know all of these every criminal has an issue every every villain does have his reason and it usually has to do with you know a trauma sure so um, you know now that can get a little one note and they did more than that a lot more I mean you know than than just but but for some reason at some point or other the third one I did they didn't like as much and they brought in another writer to rewrite it and then that was like I was kind of done with them mm-hmm. so I didn't get. You know, I didn't get as far into it as I, I would have liked, but, you know, well, that's not true. I mean, I actually wrote a story for the second season, mm-hmm. but in the second season, Fox wanted it sunnier, and I actually yes. wrote the Batman, the animated series episode that got killed for being, quote, unquote, too dark. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was basically, the idea was that, what if Batman got that little push over the cliff and went full-blown psychotic, because he's halfway there. Sure. And he goes psycho, and Robin has to save him. And uh, it, the the climax was him bringing Batman, bringing all the rogues to this abandoned sports stadium at the edge of Gotham City. And he's there in the middle, and he says, "You know, you want to kill me, huh? You all want you all want me dead? I tell you what." And he whips open his cape, and he's basically wearing a suicide vest. Oh, we're all going together. Oh. And so you can see why they killed that. And it, it, and it wasn't... That was not in the vocabulary at the time, obviously, but that's what it was. Sure. And it was, so it wasn't like mind control or a dream or anything like that? This was a uh, real... No, he was given... Uh, there was this uh, right-wing paramilitary billionaire, Koch brother type, again, way before the Koch brothers. Sure. Who thought Batman, you know, was a good idea to solve Gotham's crime problem, but he doesn't go far enough. Right. So he arranges a fake crime to lure the Batman in, 
in his little homoerotic black patent leather wearing mm. jack booted uniformed uh blonde blue-eyed uh, uh handsome paramilitary guys uh-huh uh, basically gassing with a psychotropic gas that makes him psychotic. And basically Robin has to figure that out and find the answer. And to find the answer, he's got to go to the Joker for help. Oh, nice. And they, the Joker's in Arkham Asylum, and they wheel him out in these Hannibal Lecter restraints. Sure. And and he does this mind fuck on Robin, and Robin actually runs out of the room, like clutching his mouth on the verge of throwing up. I mean, it was really over. It was so far over the. Oh, uh, I want to see this episode so bad now. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I even pitched it to DC as a comic, but at that point, Robin had become Nightwing, and yeah, yada yada yada. So anyway, yeah, I, I would like to see it too. Although I, I have a feeling that they wouldn't even dare air it anymore if they had dared air it. Then it was pretty. It was kind of like it was me and Michael Reeves going. Okay, how far can we push this? <laughs> you know, before before they before we go down in flames, and we went down in flames pretty fast. Right. Um, okay. Well, we're we're about to hitting the time that you had asked me to hit, so uh, we can we can wrap it up here. Uh, is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want people to be aware of that you're working on now? Or no, I'm still awesome. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, no, mostly what I'm doing is what the rest of the world is doing, which is writing pilots. Sure. Uh, and I may be working on work, stuff I can't really talk about. Sure, I understand. Um, but you're still writing. No, nothing to plug. Nothing to plug. Nothing to plug. Just two good friends sitting around talking. Fair enough. Uh, all right. I can give you five more minutes if you got anything else. Oh, I, I, I got so much more. <laughs> okay. Right. Like I said, this, you, you talked about being 10, 11, 12 when all that great Silver Age comic stuff came out. You are that to me. That this this stuff is my when I was ten. This opened my eyes to like all the science fiction and just all that stuff. Well, that's because there was a lot of that in my. In, you know, I mean, it filtered that filtered from through me into you know what I wrote. I mean, God, in uh, Kremsey, I quote 1984. I yeah, I know. There's, yeah, there's what is it double plus ungood or something like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so good. And then, yeah, you got some Godzilla stuff in there, too. And then you got uh, Day of the Machines seemed very Terminator-influenced. and like Day of the Machines, oh, that was one I'd been doing since the early 70s. Really? Machines take over. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. That's an old one. But here's the thing. Terminator is not new either. Oh, sure. You know, Harlan Ellison famously sued over... uh, Everything? Oh, sorry. Yeah, but he won. (laughs) I mean, his name's in the end credit. Right, that's right. Um, because it was legitimately, you know, kind of lifted some of his uh, ideas. It's not, it's not, you know, the newest idea. But yeah, anyway, yes, I'm. I start was my background is SF, so mm-hmm. not, you know, in cartoons, you know, younger when I was kid, like every other kid in the world. Sure. But anyway, so you were going, you were going with that. I was that. So I'm your Stan Lee, taking all the credit for Jack Kirby. <laughs> well, you did just take credit for the turtles. In fairness. No, 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 no! I said I didn't create. Them. No, I know, I know, I know. Oh, Eastman I, and Laird created. I never stopped saying Eastman and Laird created the turtles. I would no, say. and I've heard other interviews with you. I know, I know the basic story there. And honestly, I was like, when that started, I was just old enough where I'm too cool for cartoons now, and so that wasn't really my thing. But I, I see how much work you did on that, and it's, it's damn well, impressive. Well, it's because you weren't ten. Yeah, exactly. Well, then you were outgrowing it at that point. Yeah, I had girls to impress, and I no, I don't watch yeah, cartoons. That's, that's not going to cut it. No, right. Not going to cut it. Exactly. But, um, but grown-ups, oddly enough, liked the, the series a lot. I mean, Harlan Ellison called me up after the five-part part, pilot aired. He was like, this is fantastic. Have they sent you any of the toys? I went, no. <laughs> so I'll make a phone call, and like two days later, there's this huge box of all the 
first wave of turtle toys. Oh, very nice. Um, um, you you mentioned when you were young, you did some filmmaking. There's a there's a sort of a like one sentence in your Wikipedia entry about that. What what is that? Like you you have like a. I, I was a kid filmmaker. Uh, it's not on the Game Show Network made him take it off YouTube. But there's an episode of I've Got a Secret, which was a game primetime game show on mm-hmm. CBS in the '60s, where I'm on as a child filmmaker, and nobody can guess my secret because kids didn't do that then. Right. And uh, I was really into animation, and I sort of figured out how it worked and how to make flip books and things. And my parents were, my dad ran an art gallery and knew artists who crossed over into filmmaking, like Len Lai and people you've never heard of. And they said, you should encourage this kid. So they got me a camera, and I, I started making my own animated cartoons. And a very influential film guy, filmmaker critic named Jonas Mikas. Mm-hmm all of them and called me the Mozart of cinema and suddenly I was being shown at universities and film societies and I was lecturing about animation at like universities when I was eight. Wow. Yeah. So I had, you know, that ultimately led to writing animation, but, um, uh, yeah, I had a real career. I was written about in the New York times, time magazine, life magazine, look magazine, which you probably never heard of. No, I've heard of it. Uh, look, look was the other life magazine. Right. Um, uh, variety, the New Yorker did a talk of the town piece on me. Uh, I'm in fact, Facebook friends with the guy who wrote it. <laughs> nice. Um, um, uh, uh, so yeah, I was a little sort of kind of a celebrity, little mini, you know, uh, among my family, I was a celebrity. <laughs> my parents, I was a big celebrity. Uh, at one point, my dad, who, you know, like I said, ran an art gallery and had a certain amount of influence in the art world, was introduced as a par- at a party as being David Wise's father. Yeah. He was so tickled by that. Right. So, uh, anyway, so yeah, that was my, that was my whole, I was very precocious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a child prodigy, and then it was pretty much all downhill. And then my parents <laughs> were like, how can you write for this TV crap for the rest of my adult life? And then you showed them the paycheck, and then... Uh... Yeah, well, no, nah, they didn't care. They were not impressed by paycheck. Yeah, fair enough. Um, um, so they were not that kind of people. But, uh, boy, I was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just mercenary enough. You know, nobody with a fool wrote except for money, as somebody famous said. Right. Um, well, the, the the lead sentence here on your on your Wikipedia, and I hate to use Wikipedia as a source, which is why I'm asking you rather than saying, oh, th- this is what your life is because Wikipedia says so. Yeah, I've read my Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, but it, it says you were mentored by all these huge names of, of, of sci-fi, yeah. like Frank Herbert, Harlan Ellison, Theodore well, Sturgeon. I was mentored by them. I went to the Clarion Science Fiction Writing Workshop, which still goes on in a somewhat different form. Mm-hmm. But in those days, was it was tiny, but if you were new SF, it was a huge deal because... Every, these guys would come, it was six weeks at, first one, I went to two, one at Tulane University in New Orleans in 71, and, and I was 16 and way too young for it. Mm-hmm. I was 15, actually. I was way too young for it. And then the next year, I went to one in Seattle and started selling stories professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, no, one, for every week, a new writer would come and live and you'd workshop stories. You'd write and it would workshop them every day and write and workshop them every day. Mm-hmm. And it produced a lot of professional writers. Alan Brennard, who I mentioned, who I knew from Wonder Woman and Buck Rogers, my story editor on Buck Rogers, he came out of Clarion. Mm-hmm. A different year than me. Um, and there were East Coast and West Coast ones by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, a lot of uh, uh, very well-known writers came out of Clarion. So I, you know, I actually knew some of those people. Samuel R. Delaney, I knew going in. That's mm-hmm. how I got in because he recommended me. 
because um, my parents knew him. Actually, yeah, my parents, well, I sort of introduced, made my parents get to know him because mm-hmm. I was reading his stuff and I was sort of fanatically at <laughs> And he really was a mentor. But the other ones were teachers. They were there. I've spent a week with Ursula Le Guin, Frank Herbert, people mm-hmm. like that. Um, I couldn't tell you much of what I learned from them. <laughs> the experience, you pick up so much stuff by osmosis that it's right. a great experience. So, yeah, I actually found a postcard Ursula sent me uh, recently from years and years ago. Nice. That's um, written in this kind of jokey code that I guess came out of the, the workshop that we developed between ourselves. Um uh, but yeah, that's how that happened. That was Addie Workshop. It wasn't just that I knew all these people. I went to a place where I knew these people were coming. Right. You know, I put myself there. As Woody Allen says, 90% of success is showing up. Right. Well, and it, and it seems like you are sort of at least loosely connected to a lot of sort of big genre names going, you know, going all the way back and then going forward. Like, you you know these big sci-fi names. I saw you talking. I, I looked at, I think you had a blog for a while. I can't remember where I saw it, but you had a, you had a thing where you were talking about hanging out with uh, Dorothy Fontana. And it was like that. I am so insanely well, jealous. She was my, well, we have friends in common, but she was my first boss. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's how I knew her. But it's, I mean, when we first started talking, you said you mostly, like, for Transformers anyway, did your writing at your house. And it, it would be so easy for you to just sort of be a freelance guy, I imagine, and just sit at home and write. But you've you've managed to sort of, you know. Get out of the house a yeah, Well, yeah, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, I it's it's impressive. It's, you you know. Well, I went, I, I, I spent 15 minutes in Dorothy's presence, and then I went back <laughs> to my house and I wrote. Yeah. And then she called me on the phone, and that was, you know, the end. That was it, and then I saw her like five years later. Well, fair so, enough. Uh, but no, I knew her through, you know, yeah. Networking is very hard for writers because we don't get out much. Yeah, exactly. Because nowadays it's all writers' rooms and group activity and stuff like that. Sure. I'm not. I'm so glad we didn't have a writers' room on Transformers. Uh, that, I, I mean, I and that's would have written what I wrote if there had been a writers' room. Well, no, because you were all going all in your different directions and trying to see what you could get away with, and right. yeah, that makes total sense. And uh, I, I, so you talked earlier about uh, writing, co-writing that uh, Star Trek episode with someone. You you mostly wrote alone apart from that, though? Uh, I wrote with my first wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were kind of like Lennon and McCartney. Sometimes it was just her, sometimes it was just me, and sometimes it was the both of us to one degree or another. But you took uh, joint credit we regardless? Or? Credit, yeah. no matter what. Um, the stuff that's sort of best known, you know, well, I don't know. I don't want to you know, take credit for stuff that isn't necessarily mine sure. or give away credit that ought to be mine. Um, but, uh, so we wrote <clears throat> a lot of like, until we split up in, in 80. Mm-hmm. So like my wonder woman episode, mm-hmm. uh, actually I wrote two, one didn't get shot in my Buck Rogers episode, which is very famous. If you're a fan of Buck Rogers, cause it's the vampire episode. Um, uh, were written with her, and uh, she definitely contributed to them. Mm-hmm. And, but eventually, I sort of outgrew it and started writing on my own because I was just because I was faster on my own. Right. And then I tried to do the same thing with a girlfriend named Patty Howard when I went in for Turtles because I had just finished doing the bazillion Transformers and I was so burned out on writing cartoons. And suddenly, this thing to write this five-part Turtles pilot came in and I said well let's write it together it'll be more fun mm-hmm. between jobs uh, and it's like it didn't work out and uh, unfortunately I had told Murakami Wolf we were writing together and when I finally turned in the scripts which I wrote entirely by myself 
they, you know, I was running so late that I turned them in with our cover pages, so she gets a credit on no. that one. Does sort of piss me off. <laughs> if you look at it or look her up in IMDb, you will also see that's her only credit. Right. Um. So uh, you know, it's like I, I I think I'm safe, and she would I'm sure agree with me that she she really likes me. Right. So, uh, so I never really did it after that. Um, I, I am collaborating now to some degree with my, my current and presumably last wife. Mm-hmm. We've been together for 15 years. We've mm-hmm. been together for longer than 15 years. We've been married for almost 15 years. Uh, because she, you know, actually is a writer and we're kind of a good fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these pilots and things, we're, we're actually writing together but uh, very cool I forget what the question was but i, I know just if you write alone or not yeah I, I i you know i mean when i write alone it's just because it's easier sure uh you know what i really want what i my idea of collaborator is you know where i get stuck and i go i can't i need something here i don't know what it is or how do i make this work or how do i fix this problem and they go oh just do this and i go oh yeah right perfect and then you go sit there yep. and write you know, that would be my ideal collaborator. I've not found that. So, you know, I'm not sure anybody would stand still for being that kind of collaborator. Uh, I, I work with a guy who basically does that. I do 90% of the lifting, and then I say, okay, I need a good idea, and then he goes away again. So that, that, that works out really well. Sometimes a good idea is, is, is worth it. Yeah, um, exactly. But, uh, yeah. So anything else? or um, anything one, else? one more quick thing. I have a friend who co-hosts a Doctor Who podcast, you and I know... I have a friend. No, I... Well, one or two. Okay. <laughs> I may have more after this. Look, I know David Wise. Um, <laughs> now... Certainly get some enemies. <laughs> uh, my friend co-hosts a Doctor Who podcast, and he noticed your... He, he recognized your name from some of the uh, audios, I guess, you worked on? Yeah, I wrote uh, a, a audio. Yeah. Oh, okay. I finally fulfilled my lifelong dream to write something Doctor Who related. Well, because I know you're definitely yeah, a fan from way back. Art. Yeah, I, I know a lot of the writers and and, and some of the actors, even. Uh, uh-huh. And I'm a huge fan and, and have been... Not since I was a kid. I actually discovered the show when I was about... I think I must have been 22 or 23, but... It's literally like the, the top of my head popped off, and I went, where has this been all my life? Right. Yeah. Um, well, the, the question he wanted me to ask you, just just the sort of standard, like, one-word answer is, who's your favorite doctor? Oh, Tom Baker. Oh, easy. <laughs> um, um, yeah, Tom Baker and whoever I happen to be watching at the moment is also my favorite doctor. Yeah, that, that makes Tom sense. Tom Baker was not the first doctor I saw, but he was the first doctor that I saw a lot of. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's just the gold standard. I mean, in many ways, it's kind of like David Tennant is the gold standard of the reboot. Mm-hmm. But uh, Tom Baker is the gold standard of all of them because he gets all the different aspects. Of the Doctor is funny and nutty and clever and scary and frightening and human and not human and inhuman. It's like all of that stuff. Right is contained with him within him and it's interesting to note that the best doctors well now i'm talking to your friend and i yeah, no that's fine i'm the, the best doctor the best actors to play the doctor and frankly the large majority of them are better known outside of doctor who for having originally played villains uh-huh um patrick troughton uh, uh played villains um uh william hartnell played villains tom baker was did you ever see a movie called The Golden Voyage of Sinbad? Uh, yeah, but uh, but on Mystery Science Theater, I did. Yeah. No, 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 not you no, not that one. You no, know, that's okay. Harry Hamlin. It's a good movie. Okay. And he was the villain in that. Um, um, he was Rasputin. Hmm. 
mm. in the film Nicholas and Alexandra. I mean, he had played villains, and then he played Doctor Who, and Peter Capaldi was the current Doctor. Yeah. I mean, mostly played sort of people you love to hate, like uh, the character. Oh, yeah, in the thick of it. You're right, exactly. So, um, and he's, he's Cardinal Richelieu and the Mus- Musketeers. He's good at playing villains. Uh-huh. Because there's something scary, funny and scary is Doctor Who. Yeah. But that's the Doctor, that's also the character. So that's that's my answer. But but Tom Baker and my second answer is whichever Doctor I'm watching at the moment. <laughs> well, I would say for a good final question here, what this is sort of a broad thing, but how do you feel about the different properties that you've touched over the years, where they're at now. Like I imagine you're not super pleased about where the turtles are right now with the big budget movie or transformers. You know, I'm glad they're doing well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, would I have done the transformers movies that way? Well, no, of course not, but I'm, I'm not Michael Bay. And would they have made as much money? Made very likely not. Uh, you know, people ask me, well, what do you think of this iteration of the turtles? What do you think of that iteration of the turtles? I go, I don't watch it that much. Right. Why I'm not? I have no financial stake in it, uh, and my emotional involvement with the original is very deep, mm-hmm. especially with Turtles. Turtles was very personal to me. That was I was those four guys. Right. As I said I took my own personality and you know broke it into four pieces and gave each one piece to each of the turtles. Mm-hmm. So why would I want to watch it? I mean, I've watched a couple episodes of the new Nickelodeon series just to kind of see how it looked and what they. But every time I turn it on, I go, really? This is just it feels like the same stuff yeah. they were doing. You know, with maybe a little bit of a different skin on it. Right. You know, and so, you know, and and again, if they don't do it as well as I felt I did it, Mm -hmm. that's going to be annoying. And if they do it better, (laughs) that's really going to be annoying. Of course. What is in it for me in watching it? I am not necessarily a fan of of my own stuff. I actually am a fan of the stuff I write. Right. I, I mean, not you know, it's not like I sit around all day watching my old episodes, but if one comes on, you know. I go, oh, yeah, I wrote this one. And I'll even laugh at my own jokes. I mean, I'm that awful. Yeah. Um, but, uh, um, no, I mean, I just, you know, the current state is the current state. I'm sort of amazed. I mean, if you had told me in 1987 that some of the biggest thing properties on the planet would be Star <laughs> Trek, Transformers, and Turtles, uh-huh. you know, like 30 years from now, I, I would have fainted. Well, yeah, you know, 25 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's great that they're going, and I, I wish I, I wish I had some, you know, yeah. uh, merchandising rights or something. But you know, <laughs> I don't, so I get the fan adoration. Which, uh, yeah, try spreading that on a cracker, buddy. Yeah. Don't pay no bills. Um, but uh, no, I, you know, it's like it's just amazing they're still going. I mean, obviously, you know, the original stuff that we did obviously hit people very deeply when they were kids, and you know, that's great. And honestly. You know, I mean, what else from that era is going as strong? He-Man isn't, and I wrote for that. Yeah, I saw but that. I, I, oh, I hated writing for He-Man, yeah. and I did not like the show. Was that the Was that the whole, like, having to do the moral thing? or? It was a lot, and it was just, he was so dull. Yeah. And it was so dull, and it was boring, and you couldn't cut loose, and yeah, I just hated it. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I mean, there's just... There's nothing else that's really, you know, other than Marvel and DC and, you know, just comics. Right. That's 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 really that big now. And if you had told me that Marvel would be going this big. Yeah. Going, wow. You know, seriously? You know, I mean, I figured Marvel would always be around, but wow. You know. 
No, you you try telling, you know, somebody from 10 years ago that, okay, first they're going to make an Iron Man movie, then they're going to make these other ones, then they're all going to come together in one shared continuity. No, do the yeah, no way. Yeah, I mean, nobody thought they could pull off the Avengers, but then the fact that they actually did the Avengers that well. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was like, I like Joss Whedon's work, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, um, I'm not, you know, a diehard fan, but I'm a fan, mm-hmm. you know? But I, it's like, oh my god, he hit that out of the park. Yeah, you know, it starts a little slow, but once it gets going, it's like it's got everything you wanted, right down to the bit of you know Thor's hammer coming down on Cap's shield. I mean, it's yep. like, of course you are, and then slowing it down so you get to linger on it like a <laughs> panel in a Kirby drawing. By the way, and I'll say I've said this before, and I'll say it again: um, uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles five-part pilot ends with a giant dimensional vortex opening above what is supposed to be New York City with uh, this whole alien army about to come through uh-huh. another dimension on the other side and the turtle's job is to shut it down mm-hmm. which is pretty much the ending of the adventures in right. Avengers and my original reaction to that was you're welcome Joss Whedon <laughs> and uh, then I realized nah you know because we both got it from the same place which was Jack Kirby sure that comes from Marvel Comics that's totally Jack Kirby yep so thank you Jack Kirby and you know like that there because you know ultimately he probably was the biggest influence on 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 all of this stuff so you know there's the moral of my story is be influenced by the best well and that's that that goes back to what i had said originally just about about all of you guys who wrote this stuff sort of being big nerds the fact that you you can watch the avengers and say uh, thor's hammer hit cap shield that's exactly how it's supposed to go yay you know like well but there's so much you know and really my favorite marvel comic was spider-man yeah, me too. And the reason why was because, in the, you know, I mean, the, it sort of evolved over the years, but in the original Ditko Lee Spider-Man, he was this put-upon dweeb mm-hmm. who, when he put that mask on, because he just became this smart... Yep, wisecrack, yep. You know, and that's like, of course I carried that sensibility into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It all comes from Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, you know, the snappy banter and all that stuff. I mean, that all comes from Marvel Comics. I mean, that is probably my single biggest influence Mm -hmm. in animation writing is, you know, those three or four years of reading Marvel Comics Mm -hmm. and reading just, you know, what were the seminal, maybe not the best, art-wise maybe the best, but, you know. But definitely the definitive, like, you know, establishing all those characters. All the myth-making, all the myth-making stuff, you know. So, you know, yeah, that shows all over the place. And and honestly, the smart-ass sensibility, that came from Stan. Mm-hmm. That was not Ditko. Right. You know? And it's, that wasn't really Kirby either. But uh, uh, so, you know, Stan, and <laughs> then I worked at Marvel Productions, you mm-hmm. know, and I had the office down the hall from Stan. That was kind of odd. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I did a show for them that never made air in uh, 85 or 86, maybe. Can you say what that is or no? Uh, it was called Young Astronauts. Yeah. Oh, okay. We did the pilot and it, it basically, it was it's tied in with NASA and the Challenger blew up. Oh, yeah. So that was kind of the end. Bad of timing, that. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, All right, I got to go. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you for being so generous. I really appreciate this. If you have any follow-up questions, you can email them to me and I don't guarantee an answer, but I'll try. <laughs> Okay. Thank you for your adulation. It makes my day a little brighter. And now I, David Wise, big time animation writer, have to go to the store and, and get stuff for dinner. All right. Food shopping. I gotta go to the market here and, and pick up some 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 turnips.
This show was produced by me, Ron Algar-Watt, and featured David Wise. To see the Transformers reviews mentioned here, as well as the current reviews I'm doing of G.I. Joe, visit algar.com. That's A A L G A R.com. Thanks for listening.